welcome to LSE and this uh, lecture uh, discussion meeting by Giles Hutchins and uh, Kelly Granger on the nature of business. Um, I'm Richard Jackman, I'm an economist here, and as I've just been discussing with uh, Kelly Granger, there are economists here who are actually particularly focused on this type of issue, but unlike me, they're not actually in the economics department, they're mainly in our Grantham Institute for Climate Change and uh, in the geography department. Notwithstanding that, we <coughs> believe that there is an important uh, contribution that economics makes to analysis of these types of issues. At least that's what we believe, and maybe your speakers will take a different view. Now, I'd like to introduce uh, the two speakers this evening. Giles uh, Hutchins, who is here, is a well, I can't read this stuff around. He's a management consultant, a business change agent with over 15 years of business and IT transformation experience with KPMG and Atos International. He's a co-founder of uh, BCI, that's Biomimicry for Creative Innovation, and regularly gives lectures at universities and uh, conferences. And tonight he will be presenting concepts contained in his new book, which I have here, The Nature of Business which challenges the prevailing business-as-usual model. The second speaker is Kelly Granger, who is over here, who is the Head of Sustainability for Interface UK and Ireland. Interface is a worldwide leader in the design and production of carpet tiles, which combine sustainability and functionality and environmental credentials, environmental, um, appropriate environmental uh, uh, structures. Kelly will explain how Interface put into practice concepts that are proposed by Giles and can be as found in this book, I hope so. Just one housekeeping announcement, oh, well, two actually. One is that I'm very sorry that I can't actually myself stay for this lecture, unfortunately, but I'm so very sure it would be tremendous and uh, very pleased that uh, so many of you will be here for it. The speakers will have uh, about 20, 25 minutes each for presentations and there will be uh, time for questions afterwards, following which there will be opportunities to acquire signed copies <laughs> of this book. So with that, I'll pass over thank to you very much. Thank you. thank you. Thank you. Right, well, thank you all very much for coming. We have a diverse audience here today. I think we've got people kind of new or budding in business. We've got people who have spent many years running companies, uh, people that are new to sustainability and sustainable business people who have been lecturing and speaking and writing on sustainability many years longer than I have. So it's, a, it's, it's great to be in your company. It's a good little group. Apologies for those at the back having to stand, uh, recognize some, some good faces. Um, and, and thank you very much, Kelly, for supporting me in this. Um, Kelly is going to be talking very much about the how this actually works in practice. I'm going to start off by giving a story about the what and the why. Do we need to change? And what does that look like? And I'm going to ground that in some examples, um, but the main example will then be a practical case study from Kelly. So without further ado, because we don't actually have that much time to cover quite a lot of content, I am going to crack on. I'll start off with a bold prediction, if I may. At least half of all businesses in the UK will be dead by the end of this decade. More than 50% of all organizations that we invest in or work in will not be around at the end of this decade. They'll either be bought out or they will have died out. One of the only things that I think business gurus can agree on these days is that we are living in increasingly volatile times. Plethora of business drivers, macro and micro, as to why organizations are facing unprecedented change. I'm not going to go into those today. Hopefully, um, uh, a lot of that is taken as read. Um, the Wall Street Journal, um, funnily enough, refers to this decade as the decade of fear. The Harvard Business Review referring to it as the decade of hell. Hopefully, today, I'm going to explore with you how it is actually the decade of change and a decade of immense opportunity. Put simply, organizations have two options. They can either adapt and be around at the end of this decade and thrive in the years ahead, not just sustain, but thrive, or they will die. Quite simple. You in this room have two options. You can either be part of the problem or you can be part of the solution. Professor Michael Porter, um, who did a lot of thinking 
and applied a lot of um, models to uh, capitalism and the approaches to business that we know today in the 80s and 90s, stood up recently whilst addressing a number of leading business uh, leaders and, and industry captains um, in New York recently and said, the old models of corporate strategy and capitalism are dead. And look at his choice of words here. We're in a paradigm shift from hurting to helping. Paradigm shift from hurting to helping, where the externalities become opportunities. The very things that we keep off our balance sheets, that we push outside the business, are the very things that give us the opportunities to adapt. I'm just going to bring this alive, if I may, with a short example. Guess, and I'm going to ask you to put your hands up, apologies for that. Guess how much percentage of materials from source, coming out of nature, everything comes from nature originally, everything in this room, everything that we use, goes into our final products. So this is for durables, so things that are meant to last, not, not, not sandwiches, for instance, but something like this, or a mobile phone, or a jumper, or a chair. Um, guess how much of the materials coming out of nature um, are still in the product at the point of sale. And let's pick the most, meant to be the most efficient and effective economies in the world. Germany, Japan, America, even the UK, perhaps. So, hands up. Who thinks 60% of all of those goods are still in the product at point of sale? Who's voting for 60%? No? 40%. Okay. We have a flutter. 25%. That means 75% of all materials are wasted at the point of sale. Are you sure? You're comfortable with that? And what about 10% then? Oh, we'll go. We'll, we'll, uh, hmm. Okay, which actually, is, unfortunately, the reality is, the truth of the matter, is it's actually slightly less than 10%. <laughs> after three months of use, or three months, because sometimes these products aren't even used, but after three months of point of sale, guess how much that reduces down to? Materials from our finite planet. Down to about 1%. So the question is, mathematical minds, <coughs> How efficient is our economy? It sounds like it's about 90% inefficient. Maybe we're just measuring the wrong stuff. Who knows? This is what Professor Mervyn King had to say about it. Now, he's from the Global Reporting Initiative, and he was given a prize recently for his um, contribution to business. While he was given that prize, he made a short speech. I'll read this out. I have little doubt that commentators in 2020 will look back on the decade of 2000 to 2010 and describe it as the decade of stupidity. Because generally companies with knowledge of the crises faced by the planet carried on business as usual. They continued to take, make, waste, as if the planet had infinite natural assets and an infinite capacity to absorb waste. Both, of course, we know are wrong. The decade of 2010 to 2020, I believe, will be the decade of change. And let's explore that. What does that mean? Change ahead. We don't really like change, apparently. Last thing we want, we want predictability, we want comfort. We get into a routine and we like to stick with it, apparently. But yet, the only inevitability in life, apart from death, is change. Apparently, two things um, are what drive change in us. One that we either learn enough about our environment that we want to change, or that there's enough pain that we have to change. The good news about this perfect storm that we're in at the moment, social, environmental, and economic problem area that we're in, is that it provides a perfect environment for us to change. Jack Welsh, not known for speaking about sustainable business, um, said uh, that uh, when change within business is slower than that without, you are in real trouble. So I put to you that this is actually fundamentally about business survival. Alas, this is the reality inside our organizations today. 
I'm sure we all are aware of what's going on in organizations of all shapes and sizes, not just small organizations, but big ones, corporates. People are tied, they're pulled in two different directions. They perhaps know that there's something innately wrong with the way we're going about things or, or that you know, life is not perhaps as good as it could be. And yet, in the environment, people are just sweated down more and more, have to drive out more and more profits for the short term. How can they be creative about new ways of operating, about changing the business model, when all they need to do is just maximize returns for the next quarter? It's the only important thing. That's what shareholders ask for. Is that what business has become? Hmm. Alas, we become so inured in the system that we actually fight to prevent change within it. That's what we're seeing today. The great news is, and that's what we'll explore, there are many business leaders, thank God, who are embracing change, radical transformation. Otherwise, it would just be me standing here talking about the truth, but everybody going, yeah, but let's go back to business as usual. The good news is, is we have Richard Branson. <laughs> Let me read him out. He wrote a book called uh, Screw Business as Usual. It's worth a read. The great news is that looking at how we protect and harness our natural resources is the largest great frontier we will have in our lifetimes. If we get it right, which we can and must, this new frontier will create millions of new jobs, save money for existing businesses, and propel us into a way of life that is far more harmonious with nature and prosperous for all. That sounds positive. This is the reality at the moment. I know it hurts, perhaps, to see it like that, but this is, unfortunately, what we've created. Um, Alain de Bouton um, is a, a modern philosopher. He's, he's written a book called Constellation of Philosophy. Uh, Philosophy. He's written other books, but um, I mention him because um, he, he talks about Socrates and, and others and, and how that can apply to modern day. I've just recognized someone at the back there um, who, who, who I used to live with years ago. Hello, Roddy. <laughs> Um, and um, he said that people hold unsound ideas and views because they have absorbed the prevailing norms without testing the logic. And of course he's right, and that's what we do. Unfortunately, a lot of our business education propels that thinking. We manifest the prevailing paradigm. We follow the herd. It's difficult to break out. I know there are people here today who actually teach and go about making change happen in education and in leadership and so on. And yet the prevailing paradigm, let's be honest, is this model. I think we would all like to think that humanity can evolve beyond that. The good news is, as I said before, is these strong winds that are facing us actually provide the lift that we need to take off. As difficult as it may feel in that business environment when you're getting pulled left and right. These tensive environments are, 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 are where mutations and where in innovations really happen. Reminds me of a Chinese uh, ancient proverb, which I may as well quote. Um, in times of great winds, some build bunkers and others build windmills. Again, do you want to be building windmills or do you want to be spending a lot of time getting stressed over building bunkers. Peter Drucker, a business guru from, from old, he said that in times of turmoil, the danger lies not in turmoil itself, but in facing it with yesterday's logic. How can each of us break out of yesterday's logic and move forward and make change happen? That's the, the challenge, as it were. It's also the opportunity. And this is what Paul Pullman, I met recently, global head of one of the largest um, organizations in the world, consumer goods company, Unilever. It's a brand that's been around for many years. Um, and he is setting about transforming his business. He said it would be easy to jack up the share price and go sailing off to the Bahamas in two years, but that would be no good for Unilever, and it would be no good for our stakeholders and our long-term shareholders. 
And so he is setting about radically transforming that business. It's not easy. It would be much easier to jack up the share price and go off sailing around Bahamas. But he's chosen to do the right thing and the challenging thing and change their organization. The funny thing is, is every time they have a challenge, they find that other opportunities come from it. Synergies, other ways of operating that they didn't really think of. These limits, those externalities that they thought were preventing them and that they needed to sort of work away from in business were the very things that give them innovation, new ways to create value. Too many people think in terms of trade-offs. That if you do something which is good for you, then it must be bad for someone else. That's not right, and it comes from old thinking about the way the world works and what business is for. Milton Friedman's optimization of short-term profits. We have to snap out of that old thinking and move to a new model. So the good news is, it would seem, that the gurus, uh, the, the captains of industry, are recognizing this and are going about snapping out of that old thinking and moving to a new model. The great news is that whether they like it or not, we've got youngsters coming through. We've got the Generation Y coming through, and they won't stand for that picture. They won't stand for what business used to be about. And they're making change happen. And we've got some of those social entrepreneurs here today. And how can you galvanize that and make them a force for good in these organizations to create new value and to help those organizations be around at the, at the end of the decade? A lot of this, for example, Barclays, how do they attract Generation Y talent? They go about perhaps doing forms of sustainable business, which not necessarily go to the root cause or the culture of what that business is about. But they can be seen for what they are, and they're easy to sense. So this isn't a dream. This is unfortunately the reality that we're in. And the journey of transformation in businesses has begun. That's the great news. We're here in 2012, in October. And yes, there are many pressing challenges, and businesses face many challenges. Uh, and yet, a number of big businesses are changing. I only point here to brands, to big brands, because they make people aware of what's going on. But actually, there are small organizations, there are nonprofits, public sector departments, all making change happen. I haven't got long enough to go through all of these in detail, but I'm just going to pick out a couple of points. Decoupling economic growth from environmental degradation is what Unilever are going about doing. Radical plan and looking at how they can work with their partners and how they can work with local communities to create value for their businesses. Interface we're going to hear about in a moment. Ray Anderson, their chairman, set about changing the business, proving that sustainable business can be about every aspect of, of shareholder value. And he made that change happen in his business, and we'll hear a bit about that story and how that's going. Puma recently measured, and people here from TrueCost, they were involved in that, measured all of their, tried to examine all of their externalities. And in so doing, came up with costs and, and, and potential ways of bringing them on the balance sheet. But what they also found from doing that is potential opportunities for new business ventures. That was the interesting thing. We tend to look at things in costs, but then we find that there's ways of creating value from them. And Nike, very innovative company. They got lots of shocks, child labor, competition, etc., uh, and they adapted, and they've changed, and they're a very innovative company. Recently, they opened what was called an open IP platform, where people like you and I can get involved in designing things, and the IP is, open by the, is owned by the commons. So it's challenging the whole concept of ownership within business. And uh, those, those individuals are involved not just in sports apparel, but anything. And you, are, you wonder, well, why are Nike involved in that? Why do they want to set up what they call a green exchange for ideas? They're at the cutting edge. They're innovating. They're disrupting their own business model as well as their industries. That's the future. Hans Weirs had the pleasure of meeting him. Nolans, he's now moved to Heineken, the head of Heineken. He's the head of uh, Axon Nobel, one of the largest chemical companies. They own Dulux and ICI here in the UK. They set about uh, looking at how sustainability can drive change in their businesses. So what they looked at is rather than, they gave everybody a bonus. They said, okay, let's just change this. It's not going to be niche. We'll give all of our top 1,000 global executives 50% of their bonus on sustainability. Boom, end of story. Out of that, how much of that was actually related to uh, measuring carbon, waste, and water? Less than half. 
Most of it was about how can you come up with products and services and ways of creating value for your customers that, that make them more sustainable. Yeah? Using it to generate innovation and new ways of operating. It's exciting. For example, biodegradable paints now used by the Chinese shipping industry to paint our tankers that sh shift our, our, our stuff around the, the world. Um, that has created value. It's created a product that actually costs less after they invested in it. It created stickiness in their supply chain, resilience with their suppliers, coming up with new ways of operating, and it created an immense amount of customer loyalty which they didn't know that they could get without having to spend any marketing. I haven't mentioned the reduction in CO2. I haven't mentioned the reduction of damage on, on waterways and, and pollutants to people using the paints and ca cancers and so on. This is the business case. It works on every level. And because they're looking at the externalities and bringing them into opportunities. I could go through all of these. I don't have that luxury tonight. Suffice to say, I met Jeff Imel um, in New York once um, at Cornell University, um, blue-blooded cap capitalist. Um, he says that sustainability is totally about how we innovate and how we operate. He sees it as separating the wheat from the chaff, those organizations that get it and those that don't. Henry Ward, head of, uh, head of supply chain at Dow, it's all about synergies, two companies working together and innovating. I've talked about that. And finally, Dawn Vance, I love to quote her um, because um, um, she's, she's a great force for good. And she puts it very succinctly. Organizations have three options. One, hit the wall. Two, optimize and delay hitting the wall. Or three, redesign for resilience. Now, hands up, guys, because I know we're, it's hot in here and we're a bit tired. It's been a long day. Hands up, who wants to work in an organization that's going to hit the wall? Okay. Now, bearing in mind most of us, unfortunately, in the current prevailing paradigm, are sweating an existing business model that's just delaying hitting the car crash. How many of us would like to work in an organization that optimizes but just delays hitting the wall. We wouldn't, would we? Oh, George. Look, different in a suit. <laughs> but yet, most of us are. Most of us are working, unfortunately, in organizations, in corporate organizations, we're just sweating existing business models that are just delaying the inevitable car crash. It's very difficult for us to get involved and actually create innovation, new ways of operating in a model that doesn't serve that unless you happen to be Axel Nobel that gives you 50% of your bonus, which is unusual. So what we've done is we've looked at actually how do we go about redesigning for resilience? What is the way forward here? The good news is the answer is all around us, if we so choose to look. So what we talk about, and you, if some of you have looked at the book, you'll, 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 you'll see that in the book, firms of the past and firms of the future. Firms of the past, top-down, hierarchical, siloed, atomized, command and control, all the things that we know and love about business, all that we've been taught at business schools and management schools, that's how business is, it has to be like that, surely. And it's not saying that those qualities are wrong. There are a lot of qualities in a firm of the past that are uh, important to business and need to be taken forward to the future, like predictability, accountability, uh, being able to project manage and deliver, these are all important that come from that bite-sized focus. And yet on their own, they're just not good enough to deal with the immense volatility that we're now facing. So how do we move forward? A firm of the future is one that's interactive, that's interdependent, that looks at those synergies and turns those externalities into opportunities. It's what we call a business inspired by nature. Nature has been dealing with dynamic change for over 3.8 billion years. And often we see ourselves completely separate from nature and completely, you know, apart from it. But it's because we just don't choose to look correctly. We know through psychology and so on that if you walk in nature, it improves your intelligence and your ability to think quickly and be creative. We know all that basic stuff. But we don't often look at nature and take particular examples out of that and apply them to business. Of course we do at the product level, and the architecture level, there are good examples of that. But perhaps at the way businesses are structured and the way in which we generate new value? I'll make a plug here for uh, um, someone in the audience. What we're seeing here is a shift from a linear way of thinking to a more networked way of thinking, what a lot of people call systems thinking, interconnected thinking. And there's a book that talks specifically about this. Alan's the author from that, called No Straight Lines, which goes to that heart which is shifting from this linear thinking 
to looking at things in a more interconnected way. Think of a supply chain, for instance. Each chunk in that chain, we drive each other down on cost. That's what business is all about. We compete in the supply chain. The new way forward is thinking of it as an ecosystem. Those partners working together to come up with new ways of operating. You need to work with your suppliers to come up with biodegradable paints. You need to work with your suppliers to come up with open IP platforms, just as you much with your customers, bring them on board, work with them. With non-profit partners, with social pressure groups, all of these you need to be working with rather than working against them. So this is a bit of a change. It's difficult for a lot of people to, to stomach, really. Um, and quite a few business leaders have just said, you know what? I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm going to take my bonus and, and, and my pension and go. This is not for me. I've learned everything this way. And now you're telling me I need to start changing. I'm just not up for it. I'll give you a quick anecdote. I did tell the person I wouldn't say whose name it was, so I'm not going to say the person's name. Um, I met him when we were coming back from, from Amsterdam um, with one of the clients I just mentioned and um, put my bag on and I was tired. It was a Friday night and I must have sighed, I think. And, you know, he, he, he sighed too. And we kind of just laughed at each other when we went through the security check-in. And we started chatting about, oh, what have we been up to? You know, looking forward to getting back home and blah, 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 blah. As we were walking along, we went down um, uh, into the plane and we both realized, and I was unfortunately, I was in corporate life, so I was going business class, um, which I don't do anymore. Um, so it, it worked out, he was sitting next to me and we were both sitting next to each other. It was one of those sort of slightly awkward moments where you know you've been chatting politely, but now you think, oh gosh, we're going to have to talk to each other for the next hour. Um, okay, so suddenly it was like, oh, okay, and got a little orange juices and then just sort of said, so, uh, what do you do? And um, we just started a conversation about what we were doing that evening. And funnily enough, actually, I've just realized um, um, it, uh, that evening I was going to Interface um, uh, with Janine Benius. Um, there was a showroom that you were, um, an, an evening that you had on. And, um, and, he, and, and he, I said I was talking about Inspired by Nature, new business models. And he said, that sounds interesting. That sounds like the future. I said, well, what about you? What do you do? And he goes, oh, well, I'm an economist. I said, oh, well, that's good. And he goes, hmm, you know, well, I don't know. It doesn't sound like the future to me. I said, of course it is. Economics is fundamentally important going forward. What are you doing this evening? Anyway, turns out he is one of the chief economists for the UK. And um, he, at the time, was the chief economist for one of the largest uh, leading banks. And that evening he was running, <laughs> he was in charge of, he was master of ceremonies for an event at the Bank of England. I said not to quote him, but he said to me, we're all getting together and we're all talking about the new way forward. And to be honest with you, Giles, we don't have a clue. So, good news is, plenty of people coming through do. Multi-layered approach. Got to have a, a, a pyramid, haven't you? So let's look at some of these layers. Just to split it up, I, I don't talk about this in the book because this is far more than layers. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about different layers here and just apply some of nature's inspiration to those layers to make it sort of more palatable. Otherwise, it sounds too big and, and, and fluffy. Places. Building in Harar in Zimbabwe, hot country. High-rise blocks, offices, and residentials. Next to another building. This building uses 80% less energy to run it. Why? Not only does it use 80% less energy, but the people inside it apparently are happier. They prefer living and working there. This will interest you, buddy. Because they take inspiration from termites. Because termites regulate temperature very effectively, over completely, naturally. So it's naturally ventilated, it's naturally lit, it works with the grain of nature. Not only does it make good business sense, but it makes people happier. That's an example. Plenty of other examples. I mean, the Prince of Wales, for instance, um, has been uh, applying uh, nature's principles to architecture for many a year. Uh, closer to home, Adnams, a small brewery here in the UK, uh, recently won a Green Award. Um, in their distribution centre, they've, they've invested in making a distribution centre made out of hemp. Um, uh, natural material, hempcrete, it breathes, um, it's naturally lit, and uh, they have a green roof. I, it's, made out, it's got grass and, 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 and nature on it. And they use that water uh, for recycling, for grey water. It regulates the temperature, 
people are happier inside, it uses far less energy, uh, far less cost, and of course it has the bonus of people being interested in it and looking at it and going, that's an interesting building. So these are examples of how you can take inspiration from nature and apply them to buildings. It's been going on for many years. Products. Biomimicry. This is where biomimicry comes in, into its, into its own. If you Google biomimicry, you'll come up with loads of examples of products taking shapes and forms and processes from nature and applying them to product design. The most obvious one is on my jacket, Velcro, coming from the burrs that you get when you walk through nature. Same concept. The bullet train in Japan, the kingfisher's beak. Those flicks at the end of the, um, of the planes that they've now put on because they realised that eagle's wings um, had, had less drag and gave them more lift. All saving energy, all making products more effective and at the same token working with that grain of nature. What we do is we try and take it up a level in the book. We try and look at um, taking it beyond that, rather than just making products more efficient and effective, actually how can we affect the way that we go about thinking in business, the way we go about behaving. In processes, you find in nature, nature does not do waste. Only we do waste. Why doesn't nature waste? It's because the output of one flow becomes the input of another. So if we look at industrial ecology, if we look at how we set up our factories, but also how we look at the business processes within our own organizations, the flow of information, the way in which we share, the way in which we collaborate, can all take inspiration from nature. People. This is usually being well outside the realm of nature. And yet the more we look, the more we realize that there are lots of examples. There's the obvious ones about communication within swarms, different leadership models in nature, whether it be wolves or geese that rotate round in their flocks, etc. But what's really exciting is when you look at the big picture and you look at, well, hang on a minute, what do we want from people operating in these new firms of the future? If we can't have this top-down hierarchical bureaucratic structure, because quite frankly it gets in the way, it can't enable us to adapt quickly, then what do we have? Rather than having a government structure that is like a massive scaffolding just holding up a small building, which is what we've currently got, we're actually talking about a thread of nylon going through a necklace. Well, you don't see it. You don't see the government structure. You don't see what holds it together. It's values. It's culture. It's what turns the generation Y on. It's what companies are trying to find and trying to find an answer with through marketing, whereas actually it's about aligning to your authentic human nature. And finally, purpose, and that fits in with that. It's no good enough these days to have a, a company that wants to maximize its short-term returns or have a purpose that galvanizes people who are saying, we want to be number one in the tires market. That just doesn't work. It plays to a machismo, perhaps, that lasts for a while, but it really does not work in this environment. You need a purpose. What are you doing? How are you creating value? How did Axel Nobel turn themselves from being a chemicals company into actually creating value, creating solutions that, that provide real value to society and enhance the well-being of those people? That's what that's about. And we look at each of those aspects and see how nature can take inspiration. Conscious of time, Kelly. So I'm going to move forward. Um, this is an emergence. This doesn't happen overnight, and actually Kelly's going to talk about that emergence. It's easy for perhaps a greenfield, a new organisation to say, right, we're going to start from the word go with these principles in place, but that's not where most organisations are at. I was on BBC Radio Devon yesterday, and um, I thought I'd look into it a little bit and come up with some examples um, before I talked on the radio. And one of the companies I came across, a company called Finisterre, who... Um, uh, uh, make uh, cool surfing products. And what they've done is they've looked, they've done specific normal biomimicry by taking otter's fur and using that to inspire the, the fur on their fleeces so they can use less membrane, less chemicals and make a product better, more breathable and warmer. But they've also instilled in the organisation from the word go the principles about creating value for their people and for the environment and building products to last. Not the current model, which actually builds an obsolescence so you can buy more stuff. It's challenging that. And they're now finding that they're 
riding the wave. They're able to see themselves through these difficult times because they have customer loyalty and they have employee loyalty. The core stuff that lots of businesses have had for many years, family-owned companies, even shareholder-owned companies have had these. You know, I'm, I'm not saying everybody in the past has been like that. No, I think it's just a current whim that we've got carried away on, um, that we just need to check ourselves back. I've talked a bit about inspiration. Obvious stuff, spider's web. If you ever see them in nature, especially with the morning dew on, making a rainbow out of the sun, very poetic. Um, but actually, there's a lot of um, real hard facts in there. Um, take it at the product level. The best that we can come up with is Kevlar. That's our strongest product. Spiders, web, tensile is more stronger than Kevlar. Um, we make Kevlar at over 1,000 degrees C, heating, beating, and treating, lots of chemicals, lots of pollution, lots and lots of waste and harmful products. Nature does that at room temperature with no waste. Fungi under the forest floor. We've now been able to prove through radioactive tracing shares nutrients between species completely different from each other. Perhaps a part of the forest that's rich in sunlight with another part of the forest that isn't, or rich in nutrients, vice versa. And they, they, they started seeing some, some really funny things happen um, between, say, an ash tree and an oak or some grass or these exchanging of nutrients. What's that about? We don't know, really. But suffice to say, the overall health of the ecosystem benefits the parts and benefits the whole. It's that ecosystem thinking when we go about working with our partners rather than just trying to maximize a quick buck and thinking about it later and moving forward. Ants, for every human being on the planet, there are over a million ants. Ants have been on this world millions and millions and millions of years longer than we have, especially as in our current form with what we've created. And yet, they have a negligible impact. Some would argue perhaps some of it's sort of um, benign in some way. Don't know. Why is that? What can we learn from them? The way that they interact in colonies effectively. There's lots. I'm just giving you some tastes. And this isn't new. Profound philosophers, thinkers, have been taking lessons from nature for many years. 500 years before Christ in ancient China. Confucius. He who is in harmony with nature hits the mark without effort and apprehends the truth without thinking. Can you imagine waking up in the morning and going, you know what, today I'm going to hit the mark without effort and I'm going to apprehend the truth without thinking. Be a good day, wouldn't it? <laughs> Einstein, look deep into nature and you will find the answers. Why aren't we listening to these guys? Pythagoras, lots of our models and techniques originate from that school of thought. He talked about when we continue to destroy nature, we will continue to destroy humanity. Leonardo da Vinci, of course we know the Da Vinci Code, we know Fibonacci series and all that hype. All of his inspirations and inventions, well before their time, took from nature. The principles like the Flower of Life, the Fibonacci series, all from nature. So, moving to the present day, moving to Ray Anderson, the chairman, the former chairman, unfortunately passed away last year. And um, he set about making change happen. He said, look, this is, I know that business is part of the problem, but it needs to be part of the solution. I know that at the moment we're working against the grain of nature and that's the problem, but how can we prove that we can work with the grain of nature and be part of the solution? And he set about changing his company, a carpet company, uses lots of oil, pollution, pollutant products, and making change happen. This is what he had to say. We have been and still are in the grips of a flawed view of reality. Yes, we still are a flawed paradigm, a flawed worldview, and it pervades our culture, putting us on biological collision course with collapse. It is a paradigm that is reflected in our culture's infatuation with stuff and our willful ignorance of nature. So you would think, yeah, okay, that's very profound, but he then set about making change happen. We can all do that. It's hard work. But actually, they started creating opportunities from doing that. We innately know that this is wrong. We all know that. But we think, oh, well, gosh, it's not my problem. He said it's a false choice between progress and the environment. Business is not about digging up the earth and converting it to pollution. Imagine 
But unfortunately, the prevailing paradigm is just that. There is a far better way to profitable business, and he said about proving how sustainable business can be all about shareholder value. On LinkedIn these days, um, since I've left corporate life, I sort of dip into LinkedIn stuff, um, you'll see lots of um, discussions about sustainability. And what's the definition of sustainability seems to be the hottest discussion. We love debating what sustainability is. Maybe because it's easier than, than doing it, I don't know. The reality is, anything that's not in harmony with nature is un unsustainable. Full stop. How do we make that happen? How do we apply that to business? The reality at the moment is far from that. And yet, as I've been outlining, there are opportunities that we can create going forward for our businesses. Those businesses that want to be around for the long term. I apologize if some of this feels rather harsh, but unfortunately, it is the truth. And I thought, why not bring it to the London School of Economics? Quick question for you all, please. I know you're busy guys, and I know you've got iPods and phones and things to fiddle with. If you could all just take a quick moment and reflect, if all jobs were paid the same, what job would you do? I'm wrapping up now. A business inspired by nature is one where the purpose, people, processes, products, and places can be inspired by nature, can work with the grain of nature and in harmony with nature. Business as a force for good. Business that helps rather than hurts. Business helps this reconnection with ourselves, our own authentic human nature, and the world around us, life itself. This is the new business paradigm, and we can make it happen. This is the transformation we're on. Fortunately, there are big brands, as well as small businesses in this space, making stuff happen. We do need to shift up there. There isn't a sort of shortcut, unfortunately. Um, this measuring, monitoring, reducing, controlling that lots of businesses have got their head around, it's okay, it's fine. McKinsey's talk about it a lot. It's incremental. You need to do it. It gets some quick, quick wins and it moves things forward. But if you just do that, you're optimizing and delaying hitting the wall. You do need to change. New ways of operating. And it's a complete fallacy to think that business should just be about limiting its harm on the planet. Business is fundamentally about creating value. It's about taking minds and, and, and applying it to problems and making good stuff happen. That's what business is really about. So how can we move forward? How can we restore? How can we make society healthier and make our environment healthier? Shift beyond zero. We talk about this in the book. These are the characteristics of Firm of the Future. I'll go through these and then hand over to yourself, Kelly. First off, a business needs to be resilient. It needs to be decentralized, distributed, and diverse. It needs to be optimizing, looking at economies of scope as well as economies of scale, balancing those two, and multifunctioning, perhaps even building in forms of redundancy. Adaptive, sensing and responding to its environment, opportunistic, to its landscape. Systems thinking, thinking in terms of the interconnections, that ecosystems thinking we talked about in supply chains, but also in your businesses. Adnams, for instance, uh, following advice from consultants, believe it or not, uh, broke their business down into little departments. They realized that it was just making things worse. It was breaking down all the interconnections and they had the guts to go back to their old way of having things open and interactive, which helped them outperform the market, they believe, um, in a very challenging time. Values-led. The core to this running through it is those values. That keeps it together. Otherwise, you have a chaotic organization. You have chaos. You need something that brings that together. What's that order? Not command and control, but values. We all know how to behave. We all know how we would like each other to treat each other. Bringing that into the workplace rather than behaving differently when you get home and then suddenly acting in a certain way when you're at work. The rock that all of this is built upon, the foundations that a firm of the future is built upon, are creating the conditions conducive to life. And this might sound a bit of an anathema for business people. Every action that we do, does it help life or does it hurt life? Up front, we challenge it. I'm not saying that we don't need to transform towards that and that suddenly from day zero everything needs to follow that rule. No, 
but use that as a way to challenge your thinking because it will create opportunities. It will bring you to the externalities and bring out the opportunities. Thank you very much. Thank you for being patient. The book's here. Thank you. And I'm, I'm, I'm happy to sign any copies afterwards if people want. So, over to you, Kelly. Um, I just wanted to say a quick thank you to Giles first for, for kind of inviting interfacing myself along and, and thank all you guys for turning up. Now, I say that in the knowledge that you've probably all turned up to see Giles, but if I say that, it makes me feel a little bit better. Um, so what, what I'm going to do, I'm not kind of here to stand up and talk about interface as, you know, a firm of the future and this is how we do it and this is how everybody should do it, not at all. It's more a case of um, talking about interface as some of the things we've done, um, some of the things we're trying to do, and, and giving some... I guess real life examples and case studies to link back to some of the stuff that Giles has talked about. So examples of how nature would respond to certain things, so principles of nature, and, and maybe some of those qualities that a firm in the future might have. And it was interesting listening to Giles, and I've read his book as well. Um, and, and if you haven't got it, you haven't read it, you know, do get a copy of it. it, it it's you know, really um, it's a fascinating topic and there's some fascinating insights. And you're probably sitting there thinking, well, you would say that because you've probably given a copy by Giles. But no, he didn't make me pay um, for a copy of it, although he did kindly give me a discount, so uh, it's very nice. Um, so it was interesting to listen to it, kind of the, the nature of, of business. And I kind of thought, if you look at it through a different lens, you can almost look at it as the business of nature. Because if you look at nature, nature is essentially you know, a, a massive um, corporation with millions of business units working underneath it. And from a distance, you know, you would think that those business units or those organisms probably work very much independently of each other. But in actual fact, when you look closer, they're all interconnected. And every organism has a right to exist. Um, and every organism has a positive impact on the environment that it exists in. And, and just to sort of question, I guess, for you guys to take away, to have a think about, is if you think about what are the positive contributions that you make personally, individually, or, your business, or does, that your business makes to the environment that it works in or exists in or operates. And that might raise a few interesting answers, if you can come up with any. Um, so I'm just going to talk through some, some examples, kind of, and try and link them back to, to kind of what Charles was saying. So just to probably explain, so you understand a bit more about the purpose, so I'll talk about purpose, product, people, some of those attributes. Um, it's probably best to talk about who we are, where we've come from. So I'll do that very briefly, because those who know Interface will have heard the story, and so I don't want to kind of labour on too much. And I know we're short of time, and you're probably dying to ask Giles lots of challenging questions. Um, so Interface, we are the designer, manufacturer, and seller of carpet tiles, these things that I'm walking on, very sexy products. Um, we're a US company, and we actually invented this idea of taking a carpet and cutting it into 50 by 50 squares. Makes it easier to install, easier to deinstall. Um, we have about 3,500 employees and we, we factories around the world globally. And by definition, we are actually the only true global manufacturer of carpet tiles. Now, where did it all begin? The company started back in 1973. It was started by Ray Anderson, who, who Giles mentioned died, unfortunately, last year um, in August. Um, and for about 20 years, Interface were you know, a pretty average company. Um, they produced carpet tiles, operated in the business-to-business -business sector. It was mainly commercial products they produced. Um, and sustainability or environment or you know, different business models didn't really, um, you know, wasn't, didn't really um, appear on the radar. Um, and then in the early 90s, Ray started getting questions about his business. Um, what are you doing about sustainability? What are your environmental credentials? What are you doing about your product's impact on the environment? And as far as Ray was concerned, he's like, well, you know, we, we're, we're compliant. Um, we're legal. We tick those boxes. You know, we tick as many boxes as anybody else. How much better can we be? Um, and to cut a long story short, he came across a book um, written by a, a chap called Paul Hawkin called The Ecology of Commerce. And it talked about the huge amount of waste within industry. And it struck a chord with Ray, and, and the way he put it, he says it was like a spear, spear in his chest. Um, and that was kind of his Damascus moment, and he set Interface on this road to sustainability. And in doing so, he set this ambitious and, and, and outrageous um, mission, which he called Mission Zero. 
um, which was to have no negative impact on the environment. And we put a date of 2020 in there. And this was really you know, ambitious. This is something new. This is something business hadn't done before. Um, and I kind of joke about sort of, you know, him coming up with sort of mission zero and that, you know, it's a typical American, you know, let's go for zero. Yeah, you know, 100%, all that kind of stuff. If there was someone in the UK, we'd probably sat back in 1994, 95 when he come up with this and probably thought, what could we realistically achieve back then? Maybe 15%. Well, let's go for 10 and we'll get there. And I think that's the key. That's the key to the success today is that Ray knew that you have to think beyond current wisdom, beyond current technology, and know that you're actually going to get a hell of a lot further down the line. If you think about what we have today, would we have thought that was possible back in the mid-1990s? Probably not. So that's kind of key to our success. And at the time, um, and we still are, we're listed on the New York um, Stock Exchange. We were a successful company, we were making money, we were making our shareholders money, our investors money. This new philosophy of Ray's, the sustainability journey, um, this new business model, obviously had to be taken to, to Wall Street. Um, and, and Ray, with his CFO, Dan Hendricks, who is now our, our CEO and chairman, um, went to Wall Street and told them about this great new idea, this new philosophy, this new way of doing things, this kind of mid-course correction, as Ray called it. And so what, what, did, what did Wall Street say? Well, the first thing they said was, is this a viable business model? And what's the return on investment on sustainability anyway? And by the way, how much is it going to cost us? Yeah. Then they said, does interface, bearing in mind, relatively small company, B2B, so worked in the commercial environment, had a, quite a small sphere of influence. Does interface have what it takes to make a business case out of sustainability? Oh, and by the way, how much is it going to cost us? Then they said, are you a bunch of tree huggers? And by the way, how much is it going to cost us again? Yeah? So it's actually quite a tough sell. And back then it took, you know, it, it took a lot of bravery to actually take your business, go to your shareholders and say, we're going to change everything we're doing at the moment. And we're going to go down this course. But we believe in it, so we're going to push ahead. And, and since then, you know, we've achieved quite a bit in terms of our kind of corporate reductions and our efficiencies. Because sometimes when you, when you go aim for sort of efficiencies of 10% you know, targets, 20% targets, you fall into the danger of, of operating within the same paradigm. But when you go for radical, that opens up a whole new world of possibilities. Yeah. So, when it comes to people, I mean, we've been trying to engage our people since, you know, in this, since it's sort of 94, 95. Um, and we've done it a lot of different ways, and we've tried to, to engage them um, using lots of different approaches. But the one we found works really the best, and it is the most, um, it's the best one for us, is, is having a purpose. People need a higher purpose to engage with, to get behind. And what higher purpose is there than the mission zero, than sustainability, and the, the journey we're on? We're also aware that within our business, we have lots of different people, very diverse, very different characters, and they all have a different door that you need to open in order to engage with them. Yeah. And we talk about targeting all of our people one mind at a time. Target them specifically within their job, within the department, within their role, and linking back how their role affects the, the, the business mission zero and what we're trying to achieve. Lots of businesses think, well, we'll send out you know, blanket email, blanket communication. It's a very quick way to target everybody. But people aren't going to get engaged. So we're aware that all of our people on our business are different, and we need to target them one mind at a time. We also try and tease out the entrepreneurs within our business. So it's not just about coming up with new ideas, new innovations, new ways of doing things from external sources, or maybe those at the senior end of the business. It's finding these entrepreneurs within your business that have the ideas. Because you'll find, particularly in a manufacturing business, a lot of the really good ideas, especially those that can save you energy, can make your business more efficient, come from the guys actually working with those in the, within those departments. And at Interface, we've got a program called the Ambassadors Program. And it's our fast-forward program to 2020 to enable us to hit Mission Zero. And the idea is it's, it's 100-plus or more than 100 um, employee ambassadors um, who really drive Mission Zero. And it's about coming up with ideas. It's about implementing product projects. It's about um, training their colleagues within the departments. Um, and it's, it's, I guess it's, um, it's thought of internally as, a, as, a, as an elite membership, but that has a limited membership. So not everybody gets to be an ambassador. You have to earn your ambassador status. And it's thought quite highly within the business. Some of our salespeople on the business cards even have salesperson and ambassador. So it's thought quite highly, and it gives them something to get behind. Um, when they talk to people. And some of the ideas that have come out, um, you know, a carpet tile reuse project in Wales, one of our account managers thought, well, why, shouldn't, why don't we take tiles back at the end of their life, repurpose them, clean them up, 
and sell them on to charities, church halls, small businesses that maybe don't purchase carpet or can't afford to purchase carpet. Another one is recycling household waste, where we turned a, a cost burden into a revenue driver. And it was so successful that we adopted it in some other factories as well. So this really builds the ideas and creates a lot of energy and a lot of motivation within the business. But the key to all of this is the idea of embracing successful failure. So a lot of business, businesses, a lot of business people don't have the bravery needed to say, look guys, you've got permission to fail. Yeah, come up with some ideas. They're not all going to be great. Some of them are actually going to be quite rubbish. But even those that fail, we're going to learn. Yeah? And the things that we learn from those failures could lead us on to even bigger and better things. And we've done that lots of times. You know, the 17 years, a lot of stuff we've got now isn't because of all the successes. Most of it is because of the failures. We've tried, we failed, we've tried, we failed, we've tried, we failed. And I think that's the key. It's giving everybody's permission within your business to fail. Yeah? And interfaces is not just about carpet. You know, we have a lot of diverse and talented people in our workforce that we've gathered from within our industry or outside of the industry. And it's not because they've got a secret love for carpet, although maybe some of them do. We've got one here tonight. Um, it's about our history, it's about our philosophy, and it's about um, where we're trying to take the business. And that's why people join Interface, not because of carpet tiles. And then the bigger issue we have, I guess, in business whole, is that we have this linear model of this take, make, and dispose of, yeah, which creates waste. And what there needs to be is a potential systemic shift towards a closed loop model, where materials continuously flow. Yeah? And that's why we look at our whole life cycle of our products, so we can see the whole supply chain picture. Rather than just concentrating on, on us and our product, it's looking at the whole picture, and it's looking beyond the end of life. So we can establish, well, what, what, what is it we want to do? How can we impact the end of life of our products? Yeah. So rather than just selling a product and saying, we've sold it, let's, let's run away until they want another one, it's how do we help that? How do we maintain that system? And here's just an example of kind of one of those um, technologies that come out of looking at this in a different way. This is um, what we call our re-entry um, plant in Holland. Now, when I joined the business, I thought re-entry, that's a bit of an odd name. Um, that's certain connotations. But... Um, the Dutch didn't get it. Um, so we have a re-entry program. We will take that task at the end of life. We have partners that we work with who will reuse them, repurpose them and sell them on. Or we have this um, process in Holland which will actually take the tiles, it will separate the yarn, the top cloth from the backing in such a way that both are clean. The backing can go back into the backing line and the nylon goes off to, to be nylon again. So instead of the, the, the traditional sort of downcycling where you might shred a product and it all goes into backing or roadworks or something of a lower value, we've taken a product separating the components, and they're going into a product of a similar value or higher. And that's kind of where you want to get to. Yeah. And then with our products, all, all the products that we produce, we, we work on a life cycle um, analysis. So we'll, we'll test our products, we'll look at them, we'll see, okay, what does it look like from the whole supply chain? We'll look at our products rather than our own sort of corporate um, part of the, the impact, which is 9%. We want to capture the other 91%. So when you have companies that just talk about this, what's happening with the rest of it? Yeah? So this is a life cycle analysis of the standard sort of an interface carpet tile using virgin materials. And you'll see that 68% of the impact, the environmental impact, is in the raw materials. 50% in this yarn, the top cloth. Yeah? Because the virgin materials for, for a carpet tile are predominantly de derivatives of oil. You have bitumen backing and even nylon yarn on top. So we need to look at the whole supply chain, our raw materials, transport, when it's installed, what impacts happen there, and then the end of life, what, can we, what changes can we make? Yeah. And going back to nature and trying to relate this back to the principles of nature, um, a lot of our products, a lot of principles do come from nature, most of them um, consciously, but some unconsciously. And back a number of years ago, this is probably our first kind of step into the world of, of nature and doing things as nature does. We, um, some of our designers and engineers did a bit of work with Janine Benyus and her team, um, who Giles alluded to, wrote a book about biomimicry. Um, it's about working with nature, how nature does things. And as any good sustainability workshop, they went for a walk in the woods, which you do. Um, and, and the team sort of put a challenge, and they asked the question, well, look, here's nature's floor. When the leaves fall on the floor, every leaf is a different size, shape, texture, colour. But altogether, it's aesthetically pleasing. So how are you going to take these principles of nature's floor and apply it to your carpet or your floor? 
So designers then just went, went away, thought about it for a while, thought, okay, that's a good question. How are we going to do that? And what they came up with was a product called, uh, was a random product called Entropy, which stands for Organized Chaos. And essentially, the basis behind it is every single tile is unique. Every single tile is different. So all it comes from the same sort of pattern, every, no tile is the same. Yeah? The idea behind that is that within the production process, there's no, no off quality. Yeah? Every tile is supposed to be different, so it doesn't matter. When you install carpet, traditionally, carpet has to be installed in a certain direction because there's a pattern to it. With random, it can be installed any way you want. So in terms of installation and the impact from an environmental point of view, it cuts down a standard installation of, of broad loom, so wall-to-wall carpet, um, which is about 14-15% waste when you install the carpet. A standard tile is about 4%. Random brings it between half and 1%. So there's a lot of benefits of this. And, and also, when you're taking the carpet back, you want to reuse it. There's no particular pattern. You can reuse it in as many rooms as you like. Yeah. So that was kind of our first um, foray into, into, I guess, nature and, and, and working with Janine Benius. What we also like to do, we also like to cooperate with our, our suppliers um, because we feel that they're the guys that know the best about their industry. So, for instance, we take our yarn. So this is the yarn top cloth that you walk on. One of our suppliers, Aquafil. When we work supplies, we don't send out these, you know, 700 question questionnaires that say, do you have ISO 14001? Do you have an EMS? What's your sustainability strategy? All these sorts of things. What we say to them is, look, guys, this is our strategy, Mission Zero. This is where we're trying to get to. We're trying to get there by 2020. We need you, as part of our supply chain, to work to help us get there. So come to us with radical, transformative products and materials. Something that's different that none of your competitors are doing that will help us get there. And if you do that, we'll guarantee you more work, more business. Those who don't want to get involved, they'll probably see less business from Interface. And one of these companies, let's say, was Aquafil. And, and they were inspired by Ray Anderson a number of years ago, their CEO was, um, to go down on the path of sustainability. And one of the challenges we put to them when we worked closer with them was to try and develop an alternative to virgin yarn. So the, the product that we, that we get out of the ground that's oil-based, come up with an alternative. And last year, we launched a product called Biosphera. That's supposed to say zero virgin materials, not just zero virgins. Um, so 100% recycled yarn, and it's the first product that came out last year um, with 100% recycled yarn. And behind that, 30% of that 100% recycled yarn is from post-consumer. Yeah? And that post-consumer 30% comes from disused fishing nets. So our supply aquafil deliberately went down this journey to find an alternative. They found that these disused fishing nets in places like Philippines, India, Canada, Ukraine, were the same nylon as our carpets. And they worked out the way to depolymerize this nylon and extrude its brand new nylon. And the beauty is there's no extent to how many times you can recycle nylon. Yeah? So it's kind of taken that nature's view of one organism's waste become the ingredients of another organism. So one industry's waste, fishing, becomes the ingredients for carpet tiles. And then we've taken it one step further by looking at, well, how do we actually get materials from nature outside of oil and actually put them into our product? And for, for many years, we've been trying to do this, and, it, and we failed. And this goes back to that failure, 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 and eventually you, you get there. The problem being that most materials in nature aren't as robust as nylon. And just for example, in the UK, you have to put a 10-year warranty on your carpets. And then the past we came up, the product was based on PLA. That lasted three years. So we didn't take it up in the, in, in the UK. So for many years, we've looked at these different bamboo, different kind of products. Um, and about three weeks ago, we launched a new product called Photosphera, um, which is made with bio-based yarn. And the bio-based yarn is based on castor bean oil. Yeah. And, the good, and the thing about castor bean oil is we were looking for a material that had lots of environmental attributes, but also potentially socioeconomic story behind it as well. From an environmental point of view, it grows mainly on marginal land, so it doesn't compete with food crops, which was really important to us. You only need to water it once every 25 days. It's a rapidly renewable crop. It grows every four months, so potentially you can have three to four yields in a year. And from a socio-economic point of view, these rural farmers, there's a tenfold payback on the input costs of this crop. So if they cost them £10 to actually grow the crop, they get £100 for what they get back from it. So it, it's, a, it's a massive additional input in terms of the, the, the revenue that they're getting. And what we tend to do is any innovations that we have, we'll have a number of hero products 
and then we'll take those innovations over time and try and apply them to the rest of our, our business. So last, last product information. Um, we also ask ourselves, what's the point of having a recyclable carpet if you stick it on the floor with glue? Yes, most carpets you use tachyfier or glue. It's stuck on the floor, um, and after five, seven, ten years, you, you rip it up and, and you dispose of it. So we came up with a substitute called Tactiles, which is a little sort of um, PET connector. You connect the corners of four tiles to this PET connector, then the next four, next four, next four, next four. So you essentially have a floating floor. So tiles don't actually stick on the floor, they stick to themselves. And the idea behind that is there's a lot less mess fuss when you're installing, but when you're actually trying to recycle the product or reuse it, there's no glue stuck to the bottom, there's no subflooring when you rip it up from the floor. Yeah? And this was based on how the gecko attached itself to things. So the, the strength is horizontally, um, but you can lift the tiles up quite easily. Yeah. So it's just another example of how we've kind of used nature um, in some things we've done. Now, I've, I've, I've unashamedly stolen two kind of quite cheesy slides from one of my colleagues, but I thought they kind of um, painted the picture. So when we're talking about um, you know, innovation and coming up with new ideas, it's not a marathon anymore. So you, can't, you don't and you can't work on your own. It's too hard and it's too lonely. What you need to do is get some partners. Sorry that they were cheesy. Um, you need to choose the right partners. Yeah? And each partner has a part to play in the process. Now, when you pass it on, sometimes it works. When, you, when, it, when it doesn't, that's fine. But when you do manage to pass it on, it works. It feels really, really good. So it's about gathering this group of partners. A bit like nature. You, you don't work alone. You don't work in your silo anymore because that just won't work. And then a bit about innovation. So if you think about your business model as a, as a, as a funnel, um, and this was um, coined by Professor Chesborough um, but, um, from Berkeley in the US. Think of your business model as a, as, a, as a funnel. And all of the ideas and the projects you come up with in terms of innovation, you feed through this funnel, feed through your business model into the context of your business model. And those projects are ideas that don't fit your business model, get killed off, which is wrong. Because it doesn't mean to say that those projects don't have a value or potential. It just means you haven't harnessed them. Yeah? Only the projects that fit your business model will make it through to the end. And the idea is that you need to change the context, look at something different. So the model we look at is more of an open funnel. So it's about taking that concept of your lab is your world and changing it to the world is your lab. And this came out of um, Professor Chesbrough who, who studied Xerox. And out of 35 projects that were killed off, the 30 that were still out there in the world but nothing to the Xerox anymore, 11 of those had um, market capitalization higher than Xerox by a factor of two. So his conclusion was, this R&D overspill, you're missing out on a huge amount of, of value and potential. And so kind of what we've learned over the years, it's about thinking big, set ambitious targets that people can get behind. Really engage, not just your people, but all of your stakeholders in the supply chain. Be open to external input. You're not going to be able to do this alone. Use sustainability as a source of innovation. Most of the innovations that we have have come out of wanting to be more sustainable and wanting to hit mission zero. Embrace successful failure. It's good to fail. You learn a lot from it. Collaborate and build meaningful partnerships within your supply chain, outside your supply chain. These partnerships might be within departments within your business. And look at what nature would do. So for Interface, the path is pretty clear. We've got our mission zero. Um, We've achieved a lot. We've, we've got a hell of a long way to go. And arguably, the next seven years to 2020 are going to be the hardest seven years because we're going to rely on innovation, technology, partnerships, people helping us, external input. But what I've kind of shown and what, what Giles has talked about is most of the answers or solutions you're looking for lie in nature. Thanks. <laughs>